21. So, way too ambitious about what I thought we would cover. <laughs> There's uh, too much here. Marlene, are we able to bring this down just a little bit? It's echoing just a little bit up here. There we go. Can you guys hear me? No, now you can't hear me. Right here, hello? Testing, one, two, three. How's that? Is that good? Is that good right there? Okay. All right, I think, I th- I think that'll work. Feels like it's echoing just a little bit in my... I thought that would make it worse. Does that help? No. It feels like it's echoing right here. It's... Hello, testing, one, two, three... Testing, one, two, three. Testing, testing, one, two. All right, I'll just, I'm going to have to listen to myself. (laughs) I'd rather not, honestly, but (laughs) we'll be okay. Okay, there we go. That's good. All right, you can hear me? Perfect. That's good. All right, great. Thank you, Marlena. Okay, Acts 2, verses 14 to 21. This is after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and speaking in different languages. People are wondering what's going on and Peter stands up to let them know what's going on. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on My male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out My Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon's of blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, even as we talk about the Holy Spirit once again, will You graciously send Your Holy Spirit to give us illumination to give us understanding, for we are blind without His supernatural work in our lives. And Father, help us to see that we who believe in Christ are members of the new covenant. Help us to see what an awesome privilege that is. May we not leave here this morning taking it for granted. May we leave here praising You because we have experienced all that the prophets foretold would happen. And we ask this confidently in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. With the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we're observing in the book of Acts, we are looking at a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And it would be difficult for me to exaggerate just how massive a transition, just how large a shift that is. It is literally a change from life 
or excuse me, from death to life. Let me say that again. It is a change from death to life. Let me prove my point. If you like, turn ahead just a little bit from Acts, turn ahead to Romans, and then 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is describing how he and others are ministers of a new covenant. This is what he says in verse 6. He mentions that God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. And then he says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, sometimes we talk about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And maybe we think of the Ten Commandments where Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have heard that it was said, thou shalt not kill. Uh, The letter of the law says that homicide is wrong. But Jesus said that's just the letter of the law. The spirit of the law includes don't be angry with your brother, don't hate your brother, don't call your brother names, for that would violate the spirits of the law. But here, that's not what Paul is talking about. When he talks about the letter of the law, he is talking about the Old Covenant. In other words, the law, which included the Ten Commandments. And that's very clear because of what he says in verse 7. For if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory... And I'll just stop right there. So he's talking about the letter that was written by the finger of God Himself on tablets of stone. In other words, the Ten Commandments. And He says, the letter, the Old Covenant, kills. While the Spirit, notice that Spirit with a capital S, gives life. So when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, this was bringing about the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Now, I want you to know when it says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, I take that quite literally. The letter of the law really did kill. And the Spirit really does bring about new life, eternal life. To prove this point, I'd like you to turn back to Exodus, second book of the Bible. Exodus 32. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you of the context a little bit. Uh, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. God raises up Moses. He delivers the people. We call that great deliverance. The what? Begins with an E. Exodus. That's the name of this book. Exodus. Uh, the Jews believed 50 days later... God gives the law to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. So they are delivered physically from bondage. Fifty days later, they are given the law. Uh, The people do not obey the law. While Moses is up on Mount Sinai conversing with God, receiving this law, that he will bring down to the people, what are the Israelites doing down below? Committing adultery. Building a golden calf bowing down before the golden calf, worshiping the golden calf. Moses comes down. He sees that. He's angry. 
He throws down the two tablets. And then we pick up the story in Exodus 32.25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the detriment of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Now, why is Moses saying this? Because they're violating the Ten Commandments, which brings about punishment, which brings about death. And verse 28 says, And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. In 2 Corinthians 3, you don't have to turn back there again, but in verse 7, as I read, Moses called the Old Covenant the ministry of death. And in verse 9, he referred to it as the ministry of condemnation. And he really did mean that. The letter kills. It is a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. Because if you do not obey all the Ten Commandments, God literally brings about death. Physical death and spiritual eternal death. That's what the law brings about. So Paul was serious when he says the letter kills. And we have an illustration right here in Exodus. The law is given, they disobey it, and God brings about death and 3,000 are put to death in one day. Now, at this point, we would utterly despair if it were not for the New Covenant, which includes Christ living a perfect life that we never lived, dying in our place, taking our punishments upon Him so that we could be forgiven, rising again on the third day, Forty days after that, He ascends into heaven where now He reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And then He pours out His Holy Spirit on all God's people. Why does He do that? So that now, instead of being the recipients of death, we are the recipients of life. And isn't it fascinating that God delivers His people, gives them the law 50 days later, and 3,000 are killed. But now we come to Exodus and we have Passover and Jesus Christ dying for our sins. 50 days later, the Holy Spirit is given and now 3,000 are saved and given life. So this is the great transition that's being taken place from death to life literally and dramatically illustrated in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus Christ is overturning, we could say, the Old Covenant by bringing about the New Covenant. Now, returning to Acts 2, we saw in verses 1-13 through 13 that the Holy Spirit is poured out. People are enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak in different languages. And these people who gathered together in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost from all over the known world speaking different languages are utterly amazed and perplexed because they're hearing in their own native language the mighty 
works of God. And everyone is asking, what does this mean? Obviously, there's some great meaning to this. Uh, others, however, are mocking and saying, no, they're filled with new wine. In other words, they are drunk. By the way, I should just point out that there will always be those who mock the glorious truths of the Gospel. That is just a given. There will always be people mocking what we love and embrace with our whole hearts. And we have to be careful not to cast our pearls before swine. Nevertheless, they need to be answered. If for no other reason, then other people are eavesdropping on the conversation. While we are giving them an answer, other people might be listening to the answer and they might be sincere seekers because God's doing a mighty work in their life and they might be transformed because of the Gospel that we're explaining to them. And it's at this point that Peter stands up. We continue the story in verse seven, or excuse me, 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. In other words, give me your eyes. Listen to what I'm about to say. He is getting their attention. Which, I should point out, is a very dangerous thing to do. Remember what Jesus said? If they persecuted me, they will what? Persecute you. This takes a lot of guts, a lot of courage, because Peter has no idea how this is going to turn out. And let's look at Peter for a moment and consider Peter. What was Peter doing exactly 50 days earlier? Denying Jesus. Wait a second, I recognize you. Your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. You're one of them. Aren't you a follower of Jesus? I don't know him. Denies him three times. Curses. Swearing, I do not know the man. And here, within less than two months, Peter is transitioned from a coward to the most courageous man, one of the most courageous men that we have ever seen in world history. How do we explain this remarkable transition? Well, this is how some have explained it, and perhaps many of you have heard this. On an Easter sermon, people will talk about the reality of the resurrection, and they will say one of the proofs of the resurrection is the boldness of the disciples. If they thought the resurrection was a fraud, they never would have given their life for it. But they knew the resurrection was a reality, so they were ready to lay down their lives for that truth. Maybe you heard that? I think that is a good answer. But I would say that is only a partial answer. I believe a better answer, a more complete answer, is that it's not Easter that transformed Peter completely, but it's Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured out and they were filled with the Spirit. That's when they became bold. And how many of us would admit, I believe in the resurrection, I believe it's a reality, but I need something more. If I'm going to be bold like God is calling me to be bold. And the answer is the Holy Spirit. So I really believe the answer to Peter's transformation is not just Easter, but also Pentecost. 
and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that enables Peter to stand up and he says, you know what, I'm a new man. I was a coward back then, but now I'm courageous. Now I don't care what people think. He stands up with zeal and he says to everybody, listen to me! I have got a message! And he's shouting it because there's thousands of people. He wants to be heard. And you know he's saying, I don't care what they do to me. He's not even considering that because he wants people to know this is because of Jesus Christ and he is consumed with that. And he's not even thinking about himself this morning. He's not even thinking, I wonder what might happen to me. This could be risky. He's not even thinking about that. Because he is caught up with the Spirit. He is obsessed with Jesus Christ. He's filled with zeal. And that is moving him to preach his first great sermon. The answer is the Holy Spirit. And I emphasize that because that's what you and I need. We need the Holy Spirit filling us. We need to be consumed with Jesus Christ so that we don't even consider what people think. Yes, we're going to look foolish. If you stand up for Christ, you will look foolish. You will be mocked. Sooner or later, it's a given. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or we could say will be mocked, will be insulted, will be laughed at. It is a given. But if we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we don't care what they think. Peter doesn't care. He stands up. And verse 15, he says, These men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day meaning 9 o'clock in the morning. So basically, his answer is, they're not drunk, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, end of arguments. Uh, when people say foolish things, you don't have to go into long, lengthy rebuttals of what they say. So then he moves on. And he says, this is what's going on, verse 16. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In other words, what's taking place is fulfilled prophecy. You are witnessing with your own eyes what Joel prophesied would happen in Joel 2, 28-32. And let me just make a few observations here. Uh, in 17, he begins, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. If you turn to Joel, you don't have to do that. But in Joel it reads, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out My Spirit. Peter deliberately changes Joel to fit the situation. And he changes it from afterwards to in the last days. So in other words, Peter is saying it is the last days that Joel prophesied about and the last days are here. They have arrived. The Holy Spirit Spirit coming is a sign that the last days are here. Now, what do the last days refer to? Three common answers are given. Some people say the last days refer to the end of the world. The last days of the world. Um, I don't think that this can be the answer here because he's saying this is the last days in which the Holy Spirit is being poured out. And here we are some 2,000 years later. The world is still here. Uh, many Reformed people believe that the last days refers to that period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, which will bring an end to world history. That's a possibility. The last days includes that whole time frame. 
I believe, and I won't go to the stake for this, but I believe the last days refers to the last days of the Old Covenant. I think when it says the last days have come here and I'm pouring out my Spirit, Peter is saying the last days of the Old Covenant are here. God is bringing the Old Covenant to an end because He is inaugurating the New Covenant. It was inaugurated with the blood of Jesus Christ, we could say. We say that every week, right? This cup is a New Covenant in my blood. And perhaps we could say that the New Covenant reaches its zenith in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The author of Hebrews says this in 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, he is making the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So it's the last days of the old covenant and it will vanish away completely, decisively in 70 A.D., when the temple is destroyed. That's the complete end to the Old Covenant. Bringing it end, by the way, to the sacrificial system. Never to be reinstituted again, even 2,000 years later. It was brought to a decisive end. So I believe that's what, that's what God is saying. Um, if, you're, if you're in Hebrews, I don't know if you turn there, but this is what we read in 9, beginning at verse 8. Um, after talking about entering into the temple, verse 8 says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Talking about the temple. And then he says, which is symbolic for the present age. So as long as the old temple was still standing, that was a sign of the old age, but once it's destroyed, and again, it was destroyed in 70 A.D., then that's symbolic that that old age has been done away with. Now we enter into the new age, the new covenant, the age of the spirits. And I'll come back to that a little more later. Uh, also notice from this prophecy, verse 17, Joel says, and I will pour out my spirits on all flesh. And he says the same thing in 18. I will pour out my spirits and they shall prophesy. John Scott said the picture is that of a tropical rainstorm and seems to illustrate the generosity of God's gift of the Spirit. And he says, notice that the Holy Spirit is poured out. We don't have a drizzle here. Uh, we don't even have a uh, shower here. We have a torrential downpour so that the people, we could say, are soaked with the Spirit uh, because He has been poured out. God is generous giving all of His Holy Spirit to His people. Another observation. Notice how Joe focuses on the universality of the recipients. By universality, I don't mean everybody irrespective of inward heart condition, because that matters. But what Joel means here is irrespective of outward standing or station in life. Notice the great length that Joel goes to to show that everybody's included. 17. And I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, on your sons and your daughters. So regardless of sex, men and women, are included. 
and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. It doesn't matter if you're male, female. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. In other words, Joel is saying, even on the most lowly people, male, female servants, in other words, it doesn't matter what your rank in life is, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on everybody. Everybody is going to receive my Spirit. Nobody will be excluded. And then another observation, as a result of this Spirit being poured out on everybody, in a sense, everybody becomes a prophet. And since every Christian is a priest, we intercede on behalf of people. In a sense, every Christian is a king. We reign with Jesus Christ. And in another sense, every Christian is also a prophet. Notice how it seems that everybody is included in this prophecy. Prophesying. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. In 18, in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, how can we say, on the one hand, everybody is a prophet, yet, you go through the New Testament, and it seems that there is a separate category of prophets. How can that be? Well, I think you can have both. And maybe it would help to um, clarify that prophets basically had two jobs. Uh, number one was we could describe as foretelling. Uh, they would have a message from God and they would tell that message. Foretelling. Uh, some of the prophets, not all of the prophets, would foretell. In other words, they would predict the future. So you have prophets who just declare God's Word and then you have those who predict the future. Uh, turn ahead to Acts 11. I'll just give you a quick example of foretelling. Acts 11.27 Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So here we have a prophet and he says this is what's going to happen in the future. There's going to be a famine. And he makes that known to the people of God so that they can begin to prepare for this famine. Taking up a collection so that there can be famine relief before the famine ever comes. Uh, God did this kind of thing through Joseph. He let Joseph know there's going to be years of plenty and then there's going to be years of famine and you need to prepare. God often does this for His people. So, in the narrow sense of being a prophet, we have those who foretell. In the broader sense of being a prophet, we have those who foretell. They speak God's Word. Now, here's something we have to realize uh, that is very different from the Old Testament. God, in bringing about His Spirit and pouring out His Spirit on all people, is giving His people knowledge that they didn't have under the Old Covenants. Let me give you a few verses. In Jeremiah 31-34, which describes the New Covenant, God says, they will all know Me. They will all know Me. And I believe that means not just generally, oh yeah, I know there's a God, but they will all know Me intimately. Why? Because God will give the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4-9, you yourselves have been taught 
of God. Every single Christian has personally been taught by God. And 1 John 2.27 says that all Christians have an anointing the Holy Spirit who teaches you about all things. And again, let me remind you that under the Old Covenant, not all God's people had the Holy Spirit personally teaching them so that they had knowledge about God coming directly from God. Let me back up a little bit to John and remind you of what Jesus told His disciples. This is John 16, 12 and 13. Jesus said, again, John 16, 12 and 13. He's speaking to His disciples. He said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Okay? Jesus said, I have many things to say to you, disciples. Guys, fellas, there's a lot of things I'd like to explain to you. There's a lot of truth I would like to give to you, but you're not ready for it. You can't handle the truth. And why can't they handle the truth? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. You're not ready for it because you need the Holy Spirit. This is very important. Precisely at this point, I think we're too naturalistic. We tend to think of the truth of God like the truth of calculus. If you just study hard enough, if you just study long enough, you can get it. Keep at it. We think the truth of God is like that. It's just we have the natural ability to understand it. It's not like that. Yes, we have to use our minds. Yes, we have to reason. Yes, we have to study. We have to open up God's Word. We have to study it. But we have to do that in conjunction to the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament saints did not have that anointing from the Spirit. That you, the anointing that you and I enjoy every day and perhaps just take for granted. That's why we have the understanding that we do. God personally teaches us through the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew? And there are many examples of this, but in Matthew 11:25, Jesus, Jesus says, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things, the great truths of the Gospel, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What's Jesus saying? These great truths have been hidden from some, revealed to others. It's not a matter of IQ. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of God revealing them, making them known, which He does personally through the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on and says, Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And the Son can reveal the Father by sending the Spirit who can reveal the Father. So again, I want to emphasize and make it very clear that this is a supernatural work. If you see who God is, if you go, Eureka! Now I understand. That's because the Holy Spirit has done an amazing work. We tend to think that the problem with unbelievers is that they're dumb. They're not dumb. Some of them are a lot smarter and more intelligent than us. 
The problem is not that they're dumb. The problem is that they're dead. And they need God to raise them from the dead. Or to use another analogy from 2 Corinthians 4, 4 they're blind. They, they can't see the truth. And you say, look at how glorious the Gospel is. Look at it. Isn't it wonderful? And they go, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. And you're like, wow, can't you see it? Because they're blind. A veil is placed over their face. They, they can't see it until that veil has taken away. I, I'm afraid that sometimes we put too much of an emphasis on apologetics. In other words, we sometimes think, boy, if I just had the answers. Every once in a while, someone will come up to me and say, you know, I got this, I got this Jehovah's Witness friend. You got a book? In other words, like Jehovah's Witnesses, they had this specific struggle. And if you could give me the answers, then I, then I could help them. Oh, I got this friend over here. They're a, they're a Mormon. What do, you, what do you say to Mormons? As though there's, there's an answer for Mormons that helps them to see. There's an answer for Jehovah's Witnesses that helps them to see. There's an answer for atheists that helps them to see. And there's, there's an answer for Buddhists over here that helps them to see. Yes, give them the answers they need. But let's not put too much in apologetics. Let's just not think, boy, if I was just smart enough and if I just had the answers, boy, then I could really come. You have the Gospel, friends. You, you have much more than you realize. You have the Gospel. You have the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit opens her eyes, you'll be amazed. I, I can still remember many years ago, there was a woman sitting in that section right over there, believed in evolution. After the service, she, she, gave me, she asked me a question about evolution and and I gave her some lame answer. And, and it's not false modesty. It really was. It was a lame answer. And the next week she said, wow, your answer was so helpful. Thank you. And I just like, Are you serious? I, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If, if God uses it, the simplest answers can help people. I just gave this simple answer and, and God did an amazing work, opened her eyes. And even I was amazed. I was like, wow, that's great. Uh, we need the Spirit. It's, it's so true. And every Christian has the Holy Spirit upon him. Which is why Martin Luther talked about the priesthood of all believers. Very simply, every Christian has the Holy Spirit upon them. Therefore, every Christian has a spiritual gift and every Christian should be serving in the body of Christ. Using that gift that's so important. Every Christian should use that gift. Every Christian should prophesy in the sense of speaking God's Word. I remember years ago, there, there was a book on preaching. It was called The Art of Prophesying. I thought, wow, that's, that's strange. Uh, but see, today, when we think of prophesying, you probably right away thought predicting the future. That's, that's prophesying. But the Bible has a broader answer to prophesying so that even a book written for preachers and how you proclaim God's written words called the art of prophesying, the art of foretelling God's word that's right here. How do you do that? That's part of prophesying. So keep that broad definition in mind. So in that sense, you all, brothers and sisters in Christ, are prophets as well as priests and kings of Jesus Christ. Now, something else to keep in mind is that Moses could only dream of such a day when all God's people would be prophets. Let me take you back to Exodus once again. Exodus 18 this time. I think this is, this is fascinating. 
I'm going to put two passages together because they harmonize. Uh, Exodus 18, beginning at verse 14. Well, I'll begin at verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Now, you got, you got a picture of this. I don't know how many millions of people we have here. And they have one guy to go to. Uh, you think we have mega churches today? Moses had the ultimate mega church. One pastor. He didn't have a secretary to help him out. One pastor. No secretary. No supporting staff. And all the people of his million plus congregation would come to him and they would just line up miles down the road. Maybe that's not even an exaggeration. I don't know. And they would come to him morning till evening. Well, his father-in-law, Jethro, sees this and he's like, this is going to kill my son-in-law. Uh, we pick up the story in 14. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? See, he was the only one. And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me. And I decide between one person and another. And I make known to them the statutes of God and His law. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Question. Why was Moses doing it alone? Because he had a big ego. He's like, I'm the only one that's capable of doing this. Why was he the only one doing it? Anybody know? Anybody want to venture a guess? Only one who could talk to God? He was the only one who had the Spirit of God resting upon him, giving him this insight into God's Word so that he could give this counsel. Turn ahead to Numbers 11 where we pick up the story. Harmonizes. Numbers 11. This just talks about what we said earlier. Moses said to the Lord, and this just gives us insight into what Moses is thinking. We saw what Jethro thought. You're going to wear yourself out. Now listen to what Moses says. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servants? And why, and why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Do you see it? Mm-hmm. You're laying the burden of these people all on me. That I can see all these people... Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give them? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? They were begging for me to come to Moses. He needs to take care of all that too. For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see, that I may not see my wretchedness. See what Moses is saying? Lord, would you just kill me? This, this is too, would you just kill me? This, this is way too difficult. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, 
and officers over others and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the Spirit that is on you and I will put it on them. And they shall... Uh, excuse me, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. See why Moses was doing it by himself? He was the only one that had the Spirit of God. Now, God is going to be gracious and He says, okay, gather together 70 men. Moses, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to take up the Spirit that's on you and I'm going to put it on these 70 men so that they can do the work with you. And Moses was so thankful. Now drop down to verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, sounds like Pentecost, doesn't it? They prophesied, but they did not continue to do so. They prophesied. They proclaimed God's Word. Now, I don't know what you imagine is taking place here when it says they prophesied, but I don't think it's mainly that they predicted the future. That may have not even been a part of it. They prophesied. They declared God's Word. Now, they had the Holy Spirit. They had this anointing. They were taught. They were able to supernaturally proclaim God's Word. Therefore, they are now competent to minister along with Moses because they have the Spirit. So now you have not just one guy, but 70 guys among how many million plus people were able to minister. And do you remember what Moses' prayer was? Let's read on just a little more. 26. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Moses' prayer his request was granted at Pentecost when all God's people received the Spirit and therefore, in a sense, became prophets. And again, let me remind you of the implication of this. The implication is that we all do the work of ministry. R.C. Sproul said, My dream is to have a laity who are not content with paying professionals to do a work of ministry. And, and I would just add to that, amen, that's my dream as well, to have an army uh-huh. of Christians who do the work of ministry where everybody uses their spiritual gifts and everybody serves in the body of Christ in some way, even if it's a small way. And I, I just want to say to you, this last week was a joy for me. Um, even though the church was an utter mess all week, it was a joy uh, to see so many people serving and coming together and bringing items and baked goods and setting up and cleaning up and, and just helping. I was like, this is wonderful. This is it. This is what Pentecost brings about. 
all God's people competent to minister and to serve so that we have an army of people serving. R.C. Sproul also used this analogy. He said, imagine a, a circle with concentric circles. So there's an inner circle, kind of like a bullseye and an outer circle. He said, in the middle, you have, you have the core of the church. Those who come every week and those, and those who give and they serve in the church. And then he said, outside those, you have, you have those who come and those who might give. And then you have another circle for those who just come occasionally and might attend. He said, in the outer two circles, they're denying the reality of Pentecost. Because the Holy Spirit came, not just so we could attend the service, not just so we could give, but so that we too could serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are all called to serve in the body of Christ. Now, that's what Pentecost brought about. And it is radically different from what was taking place in the Old Covenant. So, continuing on quickly in Acts, God's people all become prophets. Then we have these strange verses. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to, uh, to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day of the Lord. One commentator said, the prophecies of Joel cited in Acts 2, 19 and 20 that I just read were not fulfilled. The implication is that the remainder would be fulfilled if Israel repented. Now, I don't know where that comes from. Uh, actually, I do know where that comes from, uh, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, but, didn't Peter said this is the last days? The Spirit's poured out. And in addition to the Spirit being poured out, these wonders are going to take place. Others will say this wasn't fulfilled. Uh, some will say, uh, because we're in the last days, the Spirit's poured out at the beginning of the last days. At the end of the last days, at the end of the world, this will be fulfilled. Now, here's the question we have to ask at this point. Uh, when it talks about these signs, do we interpret this literally or figuratively? If this is literal, I admit, this, this has to be the end of the world. If, if the sun goes dark, the moon turns to blood, uh, this is cosmic chaos that brings the world to an end. Or is this figuratively? Now, earlier, when I talked about the letter kills, I said, I take that literally. And I proved that it is literal from turning to the Old Testament where killing, death, did result because of the law. Here, I'm going to argue that this is figurative. And you have to say, well, why are you literal over here and now you're figurative here? For the same reason, I search the Scriptures and say, well, how does the Scripture use this language? Does the Scripture use this language literally and figuratively? And the answer is that it uses it Figuratively, I'll give you just one example. Isaiah. Isaiah 13. And what I'm arguing is that the moon is not literally going to bleed. When it says the moon will turn to blood, I do not believe that that's literal. 
I believe that's poetic. And specifically, theologians refer to that as apocalyptic language. In other words, it's exaggerated poetry, apocalyptic language that describes not the end of the world, but the end of a nation. And let me give you an example from the Old Testament. And this is important because I say this is figurative and the Jews would under, have understood it as figurative because they would have said, yeah, the prophets spoke like that all the time when God was bringing judgment on a nation. And here's just one example. Isaiah 13.1 The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw. And what's happening here is now Isaiah is going to describe God's judgment that will come on Babylon. And then we pick it up in verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and to destroy its sinners from it. Notice, first of all, the day of the Lord is often described as a day in which God comes not physically, but in judgment on His people. The day of the Lord. Joel said the same thing. And then in verse 10, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. Now let me stop you right here. If this is literal, the world came to an end way back then when God brought judgment on Babylon. Did the world come to an end? Did God mean to say that the world was coming to an end? No, this is exaggerated, poetic, apocalyptic language to describe the end, not of the world, but the end of a nation. God is using this language to get the attention of the Babylonians to say, your empire is going to fall down upon you. It's going to collapse because of the great day of the Lord. Figurative language. So I have precedence for saying that this is figurative language here. So then the question is, well, what does it describe? I believe it describes the last days of the Old Covenant. Not only did God pour out His Spirit on the believers, but to those who would not repent in Jerusalem, God would bring judgment because God was bringing down the temple and He was bringing down Jerusalem. And if you read through the Olivet Discourse, and I'll let you do that on your own, in Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Luke 21, the same language is used. The sun will not give its light. It will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. It will be darkened before the day of the Lord comes. And I don't think that's referring to the second coming. It's referring to Jesus coming in judgment on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Bringing a decisive end to the Old Covenant, destroying the temple so that no longer is the sacrificial system operating like it was in the Old Covenant now, the transition is over. We enter into the New Covenant completely. Never to go back to the Old Covenant again because of the judgment that came upon Israel. That's what's being described here. And it came upon them in the last days of the Old Covenant. And then the last phrase that's quoted from Joel, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Question, Bible students. When it says, everyone who should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, who is the Lord? Every once in a while when I ask a question like this to one of my kids, they'll say, God. And I'll say, be more specific. 
Who does this refer to? Jesus. Very good. Brian and Zachy got it. <laughs> if you turn back to Joel, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Lord is spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which refers to, anybody know? Yahweh. It refers to God Himself. That's how we know it's Yahweh or Jehovah. That's how it is in Joel. But here, does it refer to God the Father or God the Son? And here, it refers to God the Son. And again, I can support this. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. That's incredible. If you're a Jew, that is awesome. God the Father has made God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah and He is the Lord. He is the Sovereign One. I can also support that interpretation because the verse is also quoted in Romans 10. Uh, Romans 10, the context is clearly Jesus because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you see it? Confess that Jesus is Lord, not just the Father, but the Son, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your mouth one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, and this is our Scripture from Joel 2.32, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Or excuse me, it's down a little further. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. Here's the verse. I jumped the gun. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in this context, we know it's very clearly Jesus. So now salvation is found in Jesus Christ. If you call upon Him, you shall be saved. And here's the context I want you to see. The Spirit's being poured out. Blessing is coming, but curse is also coming. Judgment is coming. The great and awesome day of the Lord, which brings blessing and cursing salvation and judgment for those who don't repent. The Jews would have understood this very clearly, I believe. You need to call on Jesus Christ. If you don't call upon Jesus Christ, you will not receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive this judgment that's coming upon you. And remember the context. Peter is speaking to those men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed. The Christians got out of Jerusalem because Jesus predicted that judgment was coming on Jerusalem. And I'll give you just one verse just because it makes it so clear. Luke 21.20 But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you, first century Jews, when you see it with your own eyes, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For those are days of vengeance. God's vengeance. Get out of the city of Jerusalem when you see it surrounded by armies because the great day of the Lord has come. Judgment has come upon Him. Get out of there. So God is bringing about salvation to His people, but He's bringing about judgment to those who would not respond. 
And today, God still says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is another great day of judgment coming. A day in which everyone will stand before the throne of God and give an account for how they have lived. And the righteous will enter to eternal life, the wicked to eternal destruction. And the difference is found only in Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. Salvation is found in no other name. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. He is our only hope. But if we have Him, we have salvation. We have the Holy Spirit. We have power. We have gifts. And we should employ them. We should use them to build the kingdom of God and to bring about the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is sobering on the one hand and encouraging and exciting on the other. Father, help us to see that Jesus Christ is our only hope. Father, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, help us to see how blessed we are to have the Spirit, to have the understanding of Your Word that we have. Help us to see this anointing that we have. Help us to see that we are now capable of being prophets. Father, help us to use our gifts. Help us to not squander them. Help us not to waste our lives. Help us not to be distracted by the things of this world. Yes, we need times of relaxation. We need downtime. But Father, help us to live in light of our gifts and the mission that You have for us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.